Section 69 of The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. Part 2. Book the Fourth. Chapter 2. From Gay to Grave. How simple is a miracle! It was breakfast hour in the green box, and Dea had merely come to see why Gwynplaine had not joined their little breakfast table. "'It is you!' exclaimed Gwynplaine, and he had said everything. There was no other horizon, no vision for him now, but the heavens where Dea was. His mind was appeased, appeased in such a manner as he alone can understand who has seen the smile spread swiftly over the sea when the hurricane had passed away. Over nothing does the calm come so quickly as over the whirlpool. This results from its power of absorption, and so it is with the human heart. Not always, however. Dea had but to show herself, and all the light that was in Gwynplaine left him and went to her, and behind the dazzled Gwynplaine there was but a flight of phantoms. What a peacemaker is adoration! A few minutes afterwards they were sitting opposite each other, Ursus between them, Homo at their feet. The teapot, hung over a little lamp, was on the table. Phoebe and Venus were outside waiting. They breakfasted as they supped in the centre compartment. From the position in which the narrow table was placed, Dea's back was turned towards the aperture in the partition which was opposite the entrance door of the green box. Their knees were touching. Gwynplaine was pouring out tea for Dea. Dea blew gracefully on her cup. Suddenly she sneezed. Just at that moment a thin smoke rose above the flame of the lamp, and something like a piece of paper fell into ashes. It was the smoke which had caused Dea to sneeze. "'What was that?' she asked. "'Nothing,' replied Gwynplaine, and he smiled. He had just burnt the Duchess's letter. The conscience of the man who loves is the guardian angel of the woman whom he loves. Unburdened of the letter, his relief was wondrous and Gwynplaine felt his integrity as the eagle feels its wings. It seemed to him as if his temptation had evaporated with the smoke, and as if the Duchess had crumbled into ashes with the paper. Taking up their cups at random, and drinking one after the other from the same one, they talked. A babble of lovers, a chattering of sparrows. Child's talk, worthy of Mother Goose or of Homer, with two loving hearts, go no further for poetry. With two kisses for dialogue, go no further for music. Do you know something? No. Gwynplaine, I dreamt that we were animals and had wings. Wings, that means birds, murmured Gwynplaine. Fools, it means angels, growled Ursus. And their talk went on. If you did not exist, Gwynplaine, what then? It could only be because there was no God. The tea is too hot. You will burn yourself, dear. Blow on my cup. How beautiful you are this morning. Do you know that I have a great many things to say to you? Say them. I love you. I adore you. And Ursa said aside, by heaven, they are polite. Exquisite to lovers are their moments of silence. In them they gather, as it were, masses of love, which afterwards explode into sweet fragments. 
Do you know, in the evening when we are playing our parts, at the moment when my hand touches your forehead, oh, what a noble head is yours, Gwynplaine, at the moment when I feel your hair under my fingers, I shiver, a heavenly joy comes over me, and I say to myself, in all this world of darkness which encompasses me, in this universe of solitude, in this great obscurity of ruin in which I am, in this quaking fear of myself and of everything, I have one prop, and he is there. It is he. It is you. Oh, you love me, said Gwynplaine. I, too, have but you on earth. You are all in all to me. Dea, what would you have me do? What do you desire? What do you want? Dea answered, I do not know. I am happy. Oh, replied Gwynplaine, we are happy. Ursus raised his voice severely. Oh, you are happy, are you? That's a crime. I have warned you already. You are happy. Then take care you aren't seen. Take up as little room as you can. Happiness ought to stuff itself into a hole. Make yourselves still less than you are, if that can be. God measures the greatness of happiness by the littleness of the happy. The happy should conceal themselves like malefactors. Oh, only shine out like the wretched glowworms that you are, and you'll be trodden on, and quite right too. What do you mean by all that love-making nonsense? I'm no duenna whose business it is to watch lovers billing and cooing. I'm tired of it all, I tell you, and you may both go to the devil. And, feeling that his harsh tones were melting into tenderness, he drowned his emotion in a loud grumble. "'Father,' said Dea, "'how roughly you scold!' "'It's because I don't like to see people too happy.' Here Homo re-echoed Ursus. His growl was heard from beneath the lover's feet. Ursus stooped down and placed his hand on Homo's head. "'That's right. You're in a bad humour, too. You growl. The bristles are all on end on your wolf's pate. You don't like all this love-making. That's because you are wise.' Hold your tongue all the same. You have had your say and given your opinion. Be it so. Now be silent. The wolf growled again. Ursus looked under the table at him. Be still, Homo. Come, don't dwell on it, you philosopher. But the wolf sat up and looked towards the door, showing his teeth. What's wrong with you now, said Ursus, and he caught hold of Homo by the skin of the neck. Heedless of the wolf's growls, and wholly wrapped up in her own thoughts and in the sound of Gwynplaine's voice, which left its after-taste within her, Dea was silent, and absorbed by that kind of ecstasy peculiar to the blind, which seems at times to give them a song to listen to in their souls, and to make up to them for the light which they lack by some strain of ideal music. Blindness is a cavern to which reaches the deep harmony of the eternal. While Ursus, addressing Homo, was looking down, Gwynplaine had raised his eyes. He was about to drink a cup of tea, but did not drink it. He placed it on the table with the slow movement of a spring drawn back. His fingers remained open, his eyes fixed. He scarcely breathed. A man was standing in the doorway behind Dea. He was clad in black with a hood. He wore a wig down to his eyebrows, and held in his hand an iron staff with a crown at each end. His staff was short and massive. 
He was like Medusa thrusting her head between two branches in paradise. Ursus, who had heard someone enter and raised his head without loosing his hold of Homo, recognized the terrible personage. He shook from head to foot and whispered to Gwynplaine, It's the Wapentake. Gwynplaine recollected. An exclamation of surprise was about to escape him, but he restrained it. The iron staff with the crown at each end was called the iron weapon. It was from this iron weapon upon which the city officers of justice took the oath when they entered on their duties that the old weapon-takers of the English police derive their qualification. Behind the man in the wig, the frightened landlord could just be perceived in the shadow. Without saying a word, a personification of the mutathemus of the old charters, the man stretched his right arm over the radiant dea and touched Gwynplaine on the shoulder with the iron staff, at the same time pointing with his left thumb to the door of the green box behind him. These gestures, all the more imperious for their silence, meant, Follow me. Prosignio exiunde sursum trahe, says the old Norman record. He who was touched by the iron weapon had no right but the right of obedience. To that mute order there was no reply. The harsh penalties of the English law threatened the refractory. Gwynplaine felt a shock under the rigid touch of the law, then he sat as though petrified. If, instead of having been merely grazed on the shoulder, he had been struck a violent blow on the head with the iron staff, he could not have been more stunned. He knew that the police officer summoned him to follow, but why? That he could not understand. On his part Ursus too was thrown into the most painful agitation, but he saw through matters pretty distinctly. His thoughts ran on the jugglers and preachers, his competitors on informations laid against the green box, on that delinquent the wolf, on his own affair with the three bishopsgate commissioners, and who knows, perhaps, but that would be too fearful, Gwynplaine's unbecoming and factious speeches touching the royal authority. He trembled violently. Dea was smiling. Neither Gwynplaine nor Ursus pronounced a word. They had both the same thought, not to frighten Dea. It may have struck the wolf as well, for he ceased growling. True, Ursus did not loose him. Homo, however, was a prudent wolf when occasion required. Who is there who has not remarked a kind of intelligent anxiety in animals? It may be that to the extent to which a wolf can understand mankind, he felt that he was an outlaw. Gwynplaine rose. Resistance was impracticable, as Gwynplaine knew. He remembered Ursus's words, and there was no question possible. He remained standing in front of the wapentake. The latter raised the iron staff from Gwynplaine's shoulder, and, drawing it back, held it out straight in an attitude of command, a constable's attitude which was well understood in those days by the whole people, and which expressed the following order. Let this man and no other follow me. The rest remain where they are. Silence. No curious followers were allowed. In all times the police have had a taste for arrests of the kind. This description of seizure was termed sequestration of the person. The wapentake turned round in one motion like a piece of mechanism revolving on its own pivot, 
and, with grave and magisterial step, proceeded towards the door of the green box. Gwynplaine looked at Ursus. The latter went through a pantomime composed as follows. He shrugged his shoulders, placed both elbows close to his hips, with his hands out, and knitted his brows into chevrons, all which signifies, we must submit to the unknown. Gwynplaine looked at Thea. She was in her dream. She was still smiling. He put the ends of his fingers to his lips, and sent her an unutterable kiss. Ursus, relieved of some portion of his terror, now that the wapentake's back was turned, seized the moment to whisper in Gwynplaine's ear, On your life do not speak until you are questioned. Gwynplaine, with the same care to make no noise as he would have taken in a sick-room, took his hat and cloak from the hook on the partition, wrapped himself up to the eyes in the cloak, and pushed his hat over his forehead. Not having been to bed, he had his working clothes still on, and his leather esclavin around his neck. Once more he looked at Dea. Having reached the door, the wapentake raised his staff and began to descend the steps. Then Gwynplaine set out as if the man was dragging him by an invisible chain. Ursus watched Gwynplaine leave the green box. At that moment the wolf gave a low growl. But Ursus silenced him and whispered, He is coming back. In the yard Master Nicholas was stemming with servile and imperious gestures the cries of terror raised by Venus and Phoebe, as in great distress they watched Gwynplaine led away, and the morning-coloured garb and the iron staff of the wapentake. The two girls were like petrifactions. They were in the attitude of stalactites. Govicum, stunned, was looking open-mouthed out of a window. The wapentake preceded Gwynplaine by a few steps, never turning round or looking at him, in that icy ease which is given by the knowledge that one is the law. In death-like silence they both crossed the yard, went through the dark tap-room, and reached the street. A few passers-by had collected about the inn-door, and the justice of the quorum was there at the head of a squad of police. The idlers, stupefied and without breathing a word, opened out and stood aside, with English discipline, at the sight of the constable's staff. The wapentake moved off in the direction of the narrow street then called the Little Strand, running by the Thames, and Gwynplaine, with the justice of the quorum's men in ranks on each side, like a double hedge, pale without emotion except that of his steps, wrapped in his cloak as in a shroud, was leaving the inn farther and farther behind him, as he followed the silent man like a statue following a spectre. End of section 69 Recording by John Trevithick